This is Macro Horizons, Episode 79, Summertime Drift, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of July 27th. And with August quickly approaching, we're eagerly awaiting reports of colleagues' summer staycation adventures. No, really. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The week that just passed in the Treasury market was a interesting one, if nothing else. And by that, I'm referring to the steady grind lower in Treasury yields, with the 10-year yield pushing up against that 55 basis point level. Now, the bottom of the range is, in fact, 53.8 basis points, so we haven't seen a material challenge yet. However, given the broader macro landscape, this does represent a notable transition from what had been a decidedly range-bound market to one that is now pushing up against extremes. The price action has not been accompanied by a move to overbought stochastics, which is longer-term constructive for the market and speaks to the grinding nature of the price action. So it's not a big repricing comparable to what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. Rather, it is a slow and steady drip lower in rates. Now, the most obvious driver behind the move has been an increase in the cases of COVID-19 in the U.S., and the delayed scheduled reopenings, as well as the reintroduction of some lockdowns. This hasn't yet translated to a material correction in the equity market. However, we did see some downward pressure as the week came to an end. All else being equal, we would expect the range to hold, especially on the first attempt to break toward lower yields. Nonetheless, the departure point matters as we look toward the end of July. There's the Fed meeting, as well as the first look at second quarter GDP. Both are events that could serve as a catalyst to challenge the bottom of the rates range, particularly if we're already up against some of those key levels going into the events. Another key takeaway from the week has been a ratcheting lower of expectations for a V-shaped recovery and the increasing sense that investors are collectively expecting the path to recovery to be much longer than initially anticipated. The first increase of the weekly initial jobless claims figures since March certainly confirmed the notion that we might have seen the peaks of the rebound for the employment market in June. Let us not forget that the U.S. ordered China to close its Houston consulate, which was intuitively followed by a comparable order on the part of Beijing. As a result, it's safe to say that the geopolitical tensions continue and that Trump's trade war is nowhere near completion. As a result, exercising caution when it comes to risk assets is the most prudent strategy at the moment, 
and we anticipate that this dynamic will continue to benefit the U.S. rates market. So it was a bullish week in the treasury market without anything really discreet to point to that triggered the drop in yields. Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. The one caveat that I would add is we did see an increase of the trade tensions between the U.S. and China, which hurt risk assets at least on the margin. And of course, the market continues to watch the incoming COVID-19 headlines to get a better skew on exactly how long it's going to take for the U.S. to progress down the path of recovery. The other thing that I would flag is that we're seeing increasing evidence of deterioration in the labor market. Initial jobless claims rose for the first time since March. That garnered a lot of media attention. But I would also point to the Household Pulse Survey, which is a new weekly survey put out by the Census Bureau that kind of suggested that the labor market peaked in mid-June and has been reversing ever since. The reason why I put out both of those is because of these various data releases coming at different points, it can be a little bit hard to identify a discrete market reaction. In other words, it's not like a major NFP surprise came out and the market reprised by 10 basis points. Instead, this slow drip of information and the labor market deteriorating provided a bullish backdrop all week. And John, you mentioned NFP, and while July's data is still two weeks away, the fact that those jobless claims figures were during the survey week really raises the question of whether we're going to see an extension of the resilience we've seen in the BLS data. That's been pretty high on the list of reasons to be optimistic on the recovery. But exactly as you say, these higher frequency metrics maybe are adding a bit of skepticism to that narrative. And let's not forget, it's not a mystery why the labor market appears to be deteriorating. We have seen a revival of stay-at-home orders. We have seen reopening efforts paused or reversed in some situations. So the notion that there will be another surge in layoffs follows intuitively. Moreover, one of the concerns that I have is as the pandemic continues to progress, we see the job shedding move from frontline service sector jobs up the management continuum and up the supply chain to the production side, potentially. Moreover, what we could also be seeing are firms who were betting on a V-shaped recovery and holding on to employees as long as they could, simply capitulating, effectively saying that the path to actual recovery and those business models being sustainable once again is going to be too long to continue to carry these employees. And just to put some numbers around the scale of what we're talking about, looking at that household pulse survey from the census, between the May and June reference weeks, that pulse survey went up 5.6 million. NFP was 4.8 million. So not exactly precise, but directionally correct and within an order of magnitude. On the other hand, between the June and July reference weeks, that pulse survey declined 7 million jobs. So even if it's two times larger than the NFP figure, that's not even suggesting flat job growth in the upcoming NFP print. It's suggesting potentially another multi-million drop. But I think it's worth re-emphasizing that this dynamic is largely known. The relockdowns are known, the new layoffs are known, the fact that the nature of the job losses is shifting are all widely acknowledged themes in the market. And outside of the labor market specifically, it's also worth acknowledging that we get the initial look at Q2's GDP this week, where consensus is for a negative 34% drop. 
And while certainly at a first pass, a reading like that would point to big flight to quality. That's not necessarily a foregone conclusion. And I think that as is often the case, the departure point for the outright level of yields really matters in this situation. We're up against the lower bound. The market has pushed below 60 basis points several times. And if we're in a comparable position, when we get the negative 34% real GDP print for the second quarter, I actually struggle to imagine that that will trigger any meaningful repricing. I actually find myself more concerned that the ongoing lofty valuations in the equity market end up being more vulnerable than the broader economic outlook and subsequently the macro environment that is supporting the outright level of treasuries. Let us talk quickly about the FOMC. We spent a fair amount of time talking about the price action and the macro backdrop, but it is FOMC week, and while historically the Fed meetings have marked potential inflection points for the market, the looming decision seems far less likely to be a real watershed moment for Treasury investors. Now, we do have an updated statement as well as a press conference, but we don't get new economic projections. And the transition of the Fed's framework that has been talked about for quite some time sounds like it will be a September event at the earliest. Yeah, Ian, I think that's right. Outcome-based forward guidance is coming. Very good chance of yield curve control. But the reality is neither of those are going to be formally committed to next week. I think if anything, Powell in the press conference indicates that the process is still being studied, how exactly they'd want to implement it, what have you. But outside of indicating that those policy shifts are still under study, I'd be very surprised if they actually pull the trigger and go that route next week. So it really does, as is so often the case for the last week of a month, come down to the two-year auction, right, Ben? That's exactly right, especially given the fact that it comes on the same day as fives. A great start to the week, if ever there was one. All joking aside, because that was a joke, we will be watching flows insofar as it's month end. It is a reasonable extension this month, and so an incremental amount of bullish flattening should presumably emerge, if for no other reason than the upside in front-end yields as a result of the supply. That being said, none of this is poised to truly reprice the market. Instead, we continue to anticipate that the broader range will hold, and any attempt to push 10-year yields close to 50 basis points will be a selling opportunity, particularly on the first attempt. And on the auction specifically, it's going to be a similar theme we've seen since the last refunding announcement. Another record large auction series will be coming within striking distance of the local yield lows. And as we saw last month, at least decent demand is all but guaranteed. After all, the Fed by design is going to be extremely reluctant to allow any rise in yields. And as we just discussed, if anything, the direction is to keep yields further out the curve, lower for longer via augmented forward guidance or yield curve control, even if that won't be formally confirmed at Wednesday's decision. And, you know, after all, who doesn't want to buy two-year yields at 14 or 15 basis points? Had to have them. With two-year yields so low, it's a pure indication that the Fed's going to be on hold for a while. If the equity market turns over, how far would we need to see the S&P 500 fall before a pretty significant policy shift from the Fed? And what exactly would they do? It's not like they're going to cut rates into negative territory if the VIX spikes a little bit. 
Well, the progress toward yield curve control or more forceful forward guidance seems the low-hanging fruit. It's also the potential to increase the balance sheet further, whether that's in the form of additional treasury purchases, mortgage purchases, or some of the newly introduced programs. I think it follows intuitively that the balance sheet will be employed as the new go-to tool in the event that financial conditions tighten so dramatically as to warrant action from the Fed. The question of how far would the S&P need to retrace is a fascinating one, in part because we know that a 35% drop in the equity market will get the Fed moving, since that is what we saw at the end of the first quarter. But given how the pandemic has changed market expectations and the fact that investors, and I would argue monetary policymakers as well, have been a bit perplexed by how quickly domestic equities were able to erase the bulk of the losses, I expect that the Fed would be a bit more hands-off in terms of at least a modest correction before they could feel compelled to jump into action. Ian, I agree with you there. And one additional reason why that makes sense is from the Fed's perspective, their job is not to establish the outright level of the S&P 500. That's the market's job. However, they do want financial conditions to be accommodative and valuations to reasonably reflect fundamentals. Given a lot of the concerns around equity market valuations right now, they might actually welcome a little bit of a retracement, if only because it might suggest fewer stability concerns going forward. Of course, they wouldn't want things to fall so much that it hinders the recovery, which makes it a very difficult balancing act. And as is so often the case, it's all about the trajectory. A 15% correction that occurs over the course of a month of trading is unlikely to prompt the Fed into action. The same correction that occurs over the course of three days could get the Fed moving. On other movements inside the Fed, this past week we saw Christopher Waller and Judy Shelton pass out of the Senate Banking Committee on their way to potentially be nominated to the Federal Reserve Board. How are you guys thinking about their chances to be formally put on the board? And what would the implications be if both get the nod? Yeah, that was one noteworthy development on the monetary policy front over this past week. And to say there's been a variety of opinions offered on the qualification of both those candidates, the reality is whether one, both, or neither of them are confirmed to the actual FOMC, really in effect what it does is introduce a diversity of thought on the committee. And at the end of the day, it will just potentially be a few votes within the broader FOMC that on the margin introduces the likelihood of dissents going forward. Now, when we've seen dissents in the past, that hasn't really offered any trading direction, rather just provided greater context on the collective mindset at the Fed. One argument I've heard is that if Shelton in particular gets approved onto the board and Trump is reelected, she might be a potential chair in 2022. Is that just overly speculative at this point? Is this something that investors should be paying attention to? I think that the election is undoubtedly going to be a focus between now and the end of the year, but I actually don't anticipate it will be a watershed event in one direction or another. As it stands right now, the consensus seems to be favoring a blue sweep. So assuming that the current administration is attempting to set up a transition away from Powell in 2021 or beyond might lead the discourse to getting a bit ahead of itself, as it were. For now, I'd side with Ben's characterization of the process. It would increase the diversity of thought and presumably open up broader discussions as well. And also as the election gets nearer, 
August will be important in that we'll also get Biden's VP pick. The announcement is slated for some time in early August. And given the fact that there's a non-zero chance he doesn't seek a second term, his vice president will presumably be a front runner in 2024, which could have longer lasting policy implications. So essentially what you're saying, Ben, is that bonds are an extension of politics. Well, yields are just an extension of stocks. And monetary policy is wishful thinking. The week ahead is very meaningful from a macro perspective. We have a series of economic data releases that will help set the tone for trading during the month of August, the most notable of which being the second quarter real GDP figures. At the moment, the consensus is for a decline of 34% in the second quarter on an annualized basis, although we do anticipate the data collection issues and simply the magnitude of the decline will widen the air bands. So anything less than a 10% miss or surprise, we expect that the market will be content to shrug off as close enough because regardless, it is going to be a dismal print. Beyond that, we also get an update of the July consumer confidence figures, as well as the weekly read on initial jobless claims. There were several weeks in which claims had lost their trading influence, However, given that we've now potentially seen a bottoming of initial jobless claims, given the series of re-lockdowns and pause reopenings, we'd expect Thursday's data to present at least a tradable headline or two. Let us not forget the FOMC meeting. Chances are low that we will see any material policy shift. The transition of the framework has been put off to September or later, or at least that's the market consensus. And with no updated economic projections, there'll be little to trade off of aside from a few word changes in the FOMC statement and, of course, Powell's press conference. It's not in the FOMC's interest to signal any near-term departure or shift in the policy stance. Very accommodative for the foreseeable future with an eye on financial conditions is unquestionably the current mantra for the Fed. We really don't see any departure from that for the foreseeable future. If anything, we will simply expect further confirmation of that through stronger forward guidance and a transition into a new framework in which average year-over-year core inflation becomes the primary target. All of that having been said, we'd be remiss not to acknowledge that the Treasury market continues to take the bulk of its trading direction from the fluctuation in risk assets, and as equities appear to be somewhat toppy at the moment, we will be anxiously awaiting to see any material repricing lower with the assumption that that will bring downward pressure on treasury yields. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And while we know the battle of the billboard charts will be tight between this week's episode and T-Swift's new album, at least we didn't delay its release. President West... Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. 
This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.